0: Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something seeking community and resources to
1: support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. It's Lindsay and Krista. We're here in person in New York City. Hanging in the studio, baby. It's good to see you in person. Good to feel your vibe. Yeah, I really appreciate you being
0: here. Thank you for being a part of our lives and community. It's so great to have you. If you're an OG, what's up? We love you so much. It was so much fun being in New York. We were at an event last week and got to meet so many of you in person that have been OGs since like 2017, 2016. We started this about seven years ago, and we've been rocking um, since then. We did it before podcasts were cool, and now we have over 600 episodes. We have a second podcast, Morning Microdose. We have a membership, and we love to bring conversations around spirituality and wellness and try and make it as approachable and digestible as possible.
1: Yeah, truly. You guys have been with us through our own evolution. Yeah. Through so much, and it's been really cool to hear from you throughout this time in your own evolution. We have a book coming out in 2025. We just finished our book, so lots to come. But today's episode I'm excited about. So today on the podcast, we have Miss Jaya, and we're gonna be talking about eroticism,
0: sex. We're gonna be talking about the history of sex. We go in from like a spiritual perspective on deities and goddesses, but she is famous for the erotic blueprint breakthrough. She was on Goop, and there's been millions of people that have taken the erotic blueprint quiz and you can discover your
1: erotic blueprint type while doing it Mm. and so i think there's this misconception that like you are not sexually compatible with certain types Mm. of people and what i love about her work is like being able to understand your own blueprint and knowing that you actually can find compatibility if you're understanding of also your partner's blueprint as well and kind of how you can become almost like activators of each other's superpowers in a sexual way, in a sensual way. And I think it's just so, so helpful, especially if you're in a relationship where maybe you've kind of like fallen into in like an autopilot type thing. This can really, yeah, I think awaken something within both of you to become curious again, become fun and like exploratory again, rather than just like, the beginning of dating bangers. You know I what I mean? know. It's the
0: best though. It's the best. <laughs> I was thinking about, so there's five different erotic blueprint types that we talk about. There's kinky, sexual, sensual, shapeshifter, and energetic. And I was thinking about so many of our, the women in our community and especially my community of people that are empaths. And I was thinking about how an empath or someone that is highly sensitive mm-hmm. would most likely be a sensual. That's what I am. You can really experience like sensory, full body orgasms, it's like you kind of, it's more energetic Mm -hmm. than it is like physical and sexual. Mm -hmm. And for me, understanding that how sensitive I am to sights, to sounds, to taste, to smell. Yes. Being able to connect to my pleasure and body has been something that in the past I haven't understood how sensitive I am. So it's like too much would be I would leave my body. Uh-huh. And now being super sensitive, like using that as my superpower yeah. when I'm having sex or being sexual because I can feel pleasure in a heightened way uh-huh. just as much as I can feel like overwhelmed in a
1: heightened way. Yes. Yes. I think I'm a shapeshifter where there are times when I'm like so in my body, mm-hmm. so kind of of the physical exploration and sensation And then there are other times when like I feel like deeply sensitive and like just picking up on the energetics of the connection and being more like attuned to that and how I want to like proceed in experiencing my pleasure or giving pleasure. So that feels a little all over the place to me. But I'm like, hey, if it's a thing, I'll own it. If it's a thing, (laughs) it's a thing. And you've got the variety.
0: You've got like so many different things. Kinky is someone that really loves taboo. Mm -hmm. They love like physical and psychological play. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is the energetic, which is someone that is able to feel full touch, touch free, multiple orgasms. And you can go into like altered Touch free,
1: multiple orgasms. She was talking
0: about that. Yeah, her and her partner, her partner came. He was sitting during the interview. It was really cool. And yeah, they do like non-touch orgasms where they can like make each other orgasm without touching them just using like it's almost like their auric field totally which is so wild wow and that's what we think about as humans like we're so desensitized because we're so focused on the physical
1: Mm -hmm. on the material Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. what
0: we can see rather than like the energy the unseen but there's so much power in the energetic field of the unseen Mm -hmm. from a sexual perspective and even from like that perspective that i don't know if that will ever be my journey in life to have that happen you're like you're Like touching
1: the auric field in your life. She's like, no. he's like, this is our third date. What are you doing? <laughs> that's wild, though. I mean, that would be like a cool goal by end of life.
0: I, you know, what? Sometimes in life, I think about things, and I'm like, that's not my journey this life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought a lot about the whole tantric world, mm-hmm. BDSM, because there's so many play parties and that whole journey in LA. Yes. And I'm like, that's not my journey this life. Oh yeah, that's not my journey either. Mm-hmm. I actually might go to one to
1: watch though. Because I like
0: to go places where I feel comfortable, but I'm like, that isn't something I'd normally do. So I like to push my
1: growth edges there. What will you say when someone asks you to partake? So
0: basically when you go to a play party, and these are parties where you can like explore sexually with groups of people. Mm -hmm. They have them a lot in L.A. All the big people do that Mm -hmm. and go to them. Mm -hmm. You can go in and you determine. If you have a favorite podcaster, they go They (laughs) They go. Yeah, they're truly (laughs) going. They're signing NDAs and they're going to play parties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically you go in and you're like, I want to watch. I want to participate. Oh, okay. I want to, or this is how far I want to go. Cool. So you can kind of like have a clarity. And then you have like a, an orange dot on I your name tag. I think so. And- I think you like have a, a ribbon or like something that like is an indicator cool. of what it is. Yeah. So I would go and just say I'd want to watch. Cool. And like, like kind voyeuristic. of voyeuristic. Yeah. That's cool. Voyeuristic. But I've heard from people that it's actually really beautiful because it's like an exploration of being around conscious people where you can explore your boundaries where it's like someone can be mm-hmm. like, you have to get consent with everything. Can I touch your leg? Can I? Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I oh. also don't know if I could go because then I'd see people that I know doing things and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I can't. Yeah. This tea is too hot. I signed an NDA. I'm going yeah, to. Yeah, you tell me. I honestly, <laughs> I'm so trustworthy, but like sometimes <laughs> there's just hot tea that you cannot. Yeah, and you just experience it, and like, totally. I mean, who knows? You guys, catch me on the
1: catch me on the flip, so
0: fun. Catch me on the flip. Who knows?
1: But I also like the seemingly like safe aspect of it. Yeah, where there's consent, there's like an organization to this, yep. like structure to yep. it that feels safe.
0: Yes, a hundred percent. And it's like going into it like as an adult, you know, like uh-huh. just understanding that. So Jaya is super cool. Her book is called Your Blueprint for Pleasure it's available now, which is really exciting. Um, I highly suggest watching the Goop special. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really, really good. It was a really good exploration of like how couple dynamics can change, Mm -hmm. you know, especially over time, you can kind of lose the polarity or lose the magnetism between each other. And I really liked that it was real people and couples
1: exploring and going more deeply into their sexuality. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Jaya. Thank you all for listening. If this one is one that you're like, whoa, learned so much, please send to a friend. Maybe it's like your next Girl's Night topic Mm -hmm. that you talk about. Make sure you're subscribed to Almost 30 and subscribe to our Clips show. So Morning Microdose is out five days a week. It is a best of the best of Almost 30. You can start your day with a little inspiration, a little laugh, a little curiosity.
0: You can find more information about Miss Jaya at MissJaya.com. It's M-I-S-S-J-A-I-Y-A.com. We love you guys. We'll see you on the other side. We'll see you soon.
1: Okay, taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last, oh my God, it's been literally four years I've been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel So energized and focused, and honestly, really, really ready to tackle the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. So, how do I take it every morning? Basically, I have my little canister of AG1, the powder. I will fill a glass, tall glass with water, nice cold water I like, and then I'll add my AG1, mix it up real good, and drink it all down. So I just know that my body is getting high quality nutrition. I know that they are absolutely obsessed with ingredients and where they are sourced for absorption and potency and nutrient density, and I just can't say enough about it. I got my husband hooked. Yes, he brings it with him everywhere. When he's on the road, he's like, where are my travel packs? I'm like, I got you, boo. So if you are someone that, you know, is kind of confused, like, what supplements should I take? Oh my God, I don't want to take all these pills, whatever. This is the one product I would to elevate your health. It's AG1 and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. We've been a partner- with them since like early days of the podcast. I'm so grateful. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash almost 30. That's drink AG1, AG number one com slash almost 30 check it out okay taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should at least be simple that's why for the last oh my god it's been literally four years i've been drinking ag1 every day no exceptions it's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day and it makes me feel so energized and focused and honestly really really ready to tackle the day That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. So how do I take it every morning? Basically, I have my little canister of AG1, the powder. I will fill a glass, tall glass with water, nice cold water I like, and then I'll add my AG1, mix it up real good and drink it all down. So I just know that my body is getting high quality nutrition. I know that they are absolutely obsessed with ingredients and where they are sourced for absorption and potency and nutrient density. And I just can't say enough about it. I got my husband hooked. Yes, he brings it with him everywhere. When he's on the road, he's like, where are my travel packs? I'm like, I got you, boo. So if you are someone that you know, is kind of confused. Like what supplements should I take? Oh my God. I don't want to take all these pills, whatever. This is the one product I learned to elevate your health. It's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. We've been a partner with them since like early days of the podcast. I'm so grateful. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash almost 30. That's drink AG1, AG number one, com slash almost 30. Check it out.
0: Something I wanted to ask you too is interesting. In the beginning, you were like, I kind of want to put this out and then move on. Right. Exactly. What was
2: that? Yeah. What was that? In terms of like putting it out and yeah, moving on? Yeah. It's interesting. Because you left a little cliffhanger. I was like, what is... Having this career of 30 years. Totally. And then I think we grow in our own evolution of Mm -hmm. self. And then when we grow in our evolution of self, Mm -hmm. my life has always become my teaching. Mm -hmm. And so whatever I've learned in my life is the teaching. Mm -hmm. And so the erotic blueprints really came like over a decade ago. So it's been over a decade. It's Mm -hmm. like that one thing where you make a hit song and then you have to play the same song over and over again.
0: That's what I was thinking about for our interview because I'm like, it's... I always want to have the most valuable but also interesting conversation for both of us mm-hmm. and for you, like you in particular. And so it's so, it's not hard, but as an interview, it's kind of hard sometimes because I'm like, I know that this is your work, but it's some, it's I know that at some point you're like, I'm good. Yeah. And so it's hard because I'm like, I want to have the juiciest conversation, uh, but also people like don't know about it. Right, right. So it's like finding right, the balance of like, how do I get you excited? Absolutely. You know what I mean? 100%. Like to talk about this, but I also want to educate them. And when I was even, I read the book this weekend. It's so good. Oh, but, great. Yay. Yeah. It was amazing.
2: It makes the interviews so much better Oh, when yeah. Throughout the book.
0: I, it's actually like when people come for interviews, like I'm just reminded how other interviews can be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, You don't know what you're going into. Right. It can be painful. (laughs) Like people are like, so what is a blueprint? You know, (laughs) you're like, oh my God. But yes, I read it this weekend. But when I was thinking about you, I was like, well, I was first thinking about everything I wanted to ask for the interview. And I'm like, how could I make this dynamic enough to be interesting, but also like get the points across? Because it's something I think people probably heard about from Goop. I think originally Mm -hmm. I watched the Goop show as well, which was fascinating. And so I think we can go into just the basics, but then we can also kind of like peel the layers back. But so both of us being from an Ohio, being people that grew up Catholic, conservative area, how was that contributed to your path in sexuality? Because I think for a lot Mm. of people, it could be something that would deter them from stepping into the world of sexuality and intimacy. How did it make you want to move forward to that world?
2: Interesting as a child, even. There was this place in me that didn't want to separate God from pleasure, even young. And so I couldn't really understand why sex was so bad and why the body was so bad, because sex was something that we all do and are a product of. And so why would we make all of humanity bad based on this idea that the flesh is sinful? And I when I was young, this is you'll find this fascinating. So in Ohio, I'm in Rollo, Ohio. And I am like the church girl who sings at the church. I'm like the little kid, you know, who sings in church, the little white dresses, mm. the whole little innocent thing. Well, the moment I turned 18, I couldn't wait. I became an exotic dancer. Stop. And so here yeah, I am, Stop. in Ohio, as an exotic dancer. And I would, I would go and dance all night and then show up at church in the morning to sing in the choir with my pockets just full of money from being out all night dancing And for me, it was a spiritual experience. It's so interesting. Like some people think like, oh, that industry or that career path or that choice would be like negative or bad. For me, it was an empowerment. And it was almost saying, no, there's something here for the integration of these two things of religion and spirituality with our sexuality, with pleasure. And I remember even I would pray at night and I'd say, dear God, maybe I'll stop touching myself when I'm. Seven. Maybe i oh, stop touching myself no when I'm 14. Because I'd have this idea of something was wrong. Something yeah. was bad. My body was shameful from church. But then I'd have my own experience, and my own experience was ecstasy. My own experience was God. And so I really set out on a mission. I think that those early years and what I learned in church and what I learned, my dad was a Bible beater. So he was like, you know, women should be submissive to the men and like the whole. I mean, I had the Bible just beat into me, literally, and into my mom. And so it this, it's just really interesting. Well, how did that shape then a mission and a destiny to bring back sacredness around sex, a mission to help us end shame about sexuality, and to raise our consciousness? It created an entire dharma for me of raising the consciousness around sex on the planet. I'm always so fascinated. Yesterday, we had some people
0: on and it just like, what happens in our path in life? It's like your soul has its own very specific frequency. That's like, I see this thing. Mm -hmm. I understand pleasure differently. And then you just have this perfect cocktail of like this scenario of you growing up in this space where... Both of them combine to create this dharma. Exactly. And it's also that what's also important, you know, hero's Journey vibes is that it's like you have this kind of traumatic experience of growing Mm -hmm. up in that way, you know, where it's it creates the friction for you to want to blossom, for you to want to evolve, for you to want to do these things. As far as like you exotic dancing, I think and I'm even wanting to recontextualize and open my mind because I'm like, how could that be empowering? How could mm-hmm. that be like, for anyone that's seeking that, like, that, that's not empowering. You're doing right. it for other men. You're doing it for the male's gaze. Like, how did you find that empowering?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it never became about the male's gaze. For me, it was, I got to express myself. I loved making my playlists and my costumes. <laughs> it was like theater, you know, I was like, oh, this is a place where I can be me and be fully expressed. And I used to do this thing where I'd be like, the key to enlightenment is in the place you'd least likely think to look. And then I would allow the gaze as, and then this is a very tantric practice that I didn't realize, you know, as I learned Tantra, I was 19 when I went into Tantra and at, at 19 realized that, Oh, wait a minute, there is a key to enlightenment that is in our pelvic floor, that is in our sexuality, that is in the empowerment of that. And for me, it was a way where I got to be in control of the experience. And so here I am with my playlist and my costumes and my whole thing. And I'm the one who's actually in power. And I think I understood consent from a very early age there and like my own boundaries of, no, you, you don't get to touch me. No. And you know what? I'm in my own experience. And I don't care if you gaze at me or not. But if you do gaze at me, great. You know, like that's okay too, because this, this body, this vessel is a key to our own awakening.
0: How did you remedy then? You know, you're an exotic dancer. Then you're going to church.
2: Did you have any
0: <laughs> cognitive dissonance? Like, and did you ever get caught?
2: Absolutely had cognitive dissonance. <laughs> you know. I did not ever get caught. I never had like anybody be like out me or anything like that. I don't know. I know because how... you could be at church and your customers could be. Yeah, true. At church as well. <laughs> <laughs> true. You be like, I saw you them... last night. Saw you last night. A lot of them oh. were blue collar. It was interesting, like a lot of police officers or firemen or like construction, and, and, and then a lot of bachelor parties too, and that kind of thing. But no, I never had like an anybody outing me. I always just had like a secret prayer inside of me of like freedom for people and a a knowingness and a connection that I just felt, I just felt right in my body, even though there was all that cognitive dissonance because of what Roman Catholicism was teaching me and the messages, even just from the beginning of like women are inherently bad. And especially if you're sexually expressed, that's even worse. And it, it wasn't until I found Tantra that, and that was a place where, oh, wow, I get to have my sexuality and my spirituality, and be who I am fully expressed in that as a woman. And one of the things I think is interesting about Tantra is before Tantra came around, it was mostly people who renounced the world. And women, they believed, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, that women could not become Buddhas only if you were born a man in your lifetime. And I, and the Tantricas were like, no, no, no. <laughs> we... Anyone, no matter of gender, can become Buddha. Mm -hmm. And so Tantra was created for the householder. Tantra was created so that we could still have sexual expression and become awakened beings, no matter what body we were in. What lineage is Tantra? Like, where does it originate from? So there's a lot of different lineages within Tantra. So there's Tantric, more like Hinduism, and then there's Tantric Tibetan Buddhism. So we're looking at areas like India, Nepal, where a lot of these teachings come out of. I think it's fascinating to study women within Tantric Tibetan Buddhism, especially because we see these women who said, kind of, fuck you, to the standard narrative of being a householder and money. And just like Buddha, who was like, okay, I'm a prince, but I'm going to go into the world. And when I see the suffering of the world, then there's a wait a minute, I'm going to go sit under a tree and meditate instead of living this princely life. And there was a lot of that as well for these women in tantric Tibetan Buddhism. And the Dakinis, which is translated Sky Dancer or Skywalker, were women who practice sexuality as a tool for awakening consciousness. Yeah. In the Eastern tradition? In the Eastern tradition. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about
0: within the Catholic Church. Like, I was thinking about Mary Magdalene, and I was thinking Mm. about the story that you also hear, which is that she was like a high priestess with a lot of deep magic, and a lot of that was like sexual alchemy. Mm -hmm. What
2: do you know about her? Well, this is a topic that I 100% love. I I found it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When I was. In college, I became obsessed with the study of Mary Magdalene, Mm -hmm. especially because of growing up Roman Catholic and like, who are these women within the religion that I grew up with who I could resonate with? Mm -hmm. And Mary Magdalene was one of them. And so I began a study of her and I actually wrote a one person show when I was in college that I just performed in France last month. Did you do the pilgrimage? I did. Well, not totally from the south of France, but we were like Paris, central France, and we went to like like Chartres and some of the cathedrals. It activated a whole, there's a whole nother story that it activated in me a spiritual awakening while I was there that was quite profound. But I believe that Magdalene and through the things that I have studied and, and read and experienced, I believe that she was a high priestess and she was a teacher. And that if we look at the Cathars and we look at the Essenes and we look at some of the teachings that are there, I believe that Christ left her the teachings to carry on and that that got taken away. That this idea of a woman in a teacher role with sexuality online is very threatening. And so I believe that her and Christ were beloveds as well. And There is a whole history of alchemy and union and teachings. And if she was part of the Isis cult, that was part of the teaching, was how do we use sexual alchemy in order to resurrect and create these other energies? And so these ancient teachings, I mean, the Egyptians knew so much about resurrection. We have the Isis and Osiris story. So we see this, a similar story to Christ and Magdalene there, where out of her love, she resurrects him and puts him back together, Osiris. And we can look and we can chart these sacred unions throughout history, which I think is completely fascinating. And the way that we do alchemy is in Greek, it's called the eros gamos. It's a sacred ritual of creating that sexual union that creates and alchemizes an energy within us for awakening. And we come into unity consciousness. In Tantra, it's called the maithuna ritual. And the Mythuna ritual, same thing. The idea is we're taking the masculine and the feminine energies and we're bringing them in through sexual union into an alchemization of the energies in the spine to raise consciousness. So there's different names for these rituals in different places. And I'm fascinated by the archetypes of Mary Magdalene, Isis, and Osiris that we see played throughout history.
0: Eros Gamos. The Eros is... Can you say more? Because I've heard
2: of the term Eros recently, mm-hmm. but I actually haven't heard Gamos. Mm-hmm. So Eros Gamos is the sacred sexual marriage. Cool. It means like a sacred sexual marriage between divine couples. And what what I love about Eros Gamos, they talked about it in the Da Vinci Code. If anybody read that book, a I need while to ago, read that. Because there's it's a whole chapter on Kind it. of
0: accurate, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of accuracies to there it. There is. Okay.
2: Uh, of course, there's tons of fiction as right. well. There's also a series, the Expected One, is the name of the first book by mm-hmm. Catherine Catherine McGowan. Cool. And that series also goes through these sacred unions, and talks a lot about eros gamos. And there were actually like people who taught the eros gamos. I want to study a lot more about this because I'd like, I'd love to be teaching this. Like, how do we, for those of us who are in, in partnership, create this? union within us of polarities and i think that's a lot of what sex does we can do it within us it doesn't necessarily mean we have to have a partner because these energies are within us and if we look at the anatomy from tantra we see that there are two channels that rise up the spine the ida and the pingala and the ida is the male masculine energy and the ida is the feminine energy and pingala is the male energy and we People talk about kundalini energy and, and tantra. And so when the kundalini rises up the spine, it's because Ida and Pingala are coming into union. And that's where we get these awakened experiences. I believe that what's happening on a physiological level is that the pineal gland is getting stimulated and the pressure on the pineal gland is causing it to ejaculate, ejaculatory pineal glands. And then... Hot. <laughs> and then we get a DMT experience. Our brain creates dimethyltryptamine, and that's where we see visions and come into the neocortex shutting off. And we start to get a shutdown of the default mode network of the brain, which then takes us into unity consciousness. Do you
0: believe then that if someone, because I think about these concepts and these ideas, and it's almost like if it was told, and I'm this could be correct or incorrect, but it's almost like if it was told to the masses, people would be like, yes, that's interesting. They mm-hmm. would want it. Mm-hmm. But would you perceive that people would have to be, to put it plainly, a certain vibrational level or like a certain type of frequency or a certain type of level in their spiritual journey to be able to do this type of magic or to be able to do this type of alchemy?
2: I believe that in a lifetime, we have certain levels of consciousness and certain things that we're drawn to. And so me being drawn to these things in a very early age, I think that We come in with desires that our soul wants for our growth in that lifetime, whatever that may be, even my trauma that I experienced in my history as well, not to bypass my trauma. It sucked. (laughs) And they had to do a lot of work to unravel that. But the thought that I have often is, how do we help people to become more interested in elevating consciousness? And I and from that we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Of if we have everybody's base human needs met, then people become more interested in consciousness. And a lot of people on the planet don't even have their basic needs met. So they're just worried about how am I gonna eat today? And not so much worried about sexual alchemy. You know? totally. yes. Yes. <laughs> so I, they're like uh, just trying to pay the bills. <laughs> and but what's interesting is that. Tantra is a science. And so what they've shown is that by utilizing these techniques to bathe the cerebral spinal fluid in this electromagnetic frequencies, you're increasing genius in the brain. And by increasing latent genius in the brain, you therefore become more successful in your lifetime because you have access to information and growth in your own brain that can help you awaken to new ways of being. I got myself out of really rural poverty in Ohio and had to change my whole generational trajectory in order to, and I I say that that came from all of the sexual practice I started when I was 19 years old to be able to raise my consciousness. And I think there's a number of things that I'm saying here. One is maybe you come into this lifetime with mm-hmm. an interest. One is let's meet all of our basic human needs mm-hmm. so that we are interested in raising consciousness. And the other is, how do we get to a place where we can utilize the techniques and the tools in sexuality to then have us crave even more of that desire? And then there's a place where you stop seeking, too.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think, yeah, I think for a lot of people, or I guess maybe this is like the Catholic part of me that's like, okay, so if we're doing sex magic It's like not understanding or seeing a lot of within my upbringing, the beauty of magic. Mm -hmm. It was almost like always negative. Right. It's evil. It's bad. It's wrong. Yes. Or the beauty of women or the beauty of so many things like Mm -hmm. angels. I didn't even know I had access to angels until I was Mm -hmm. older. So I think a lot of people are might be curious about it, but they are also wondering, yeah, probably like, is it safe to practice? Do I have a partner? and i think women lead a lot of consciousness evolution I agree. especially right now i've felt like in most of my relationships i'm always sort of the one that's like driving that the consciousness mm-hmm. train and so i think a lot of women also might be feeling like okay i don't know if my partner's ready for this Type of work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious, what would that conversation be like? Or do you think that that is a journey that people could go on if they're feeling like their partner might not be as conscious? Yeah, this is
2: a really great question. And I'll, I'll often say, you know, it only takes one to really change a relationship. And you being it is the way we do it. But you saying to your partner, you're not conscious, you're da, da, da. come with me, all of that does not work. It's in being in total un- unconditional love. And you being who you are, then is the thing that has people go, wait a minute, I'm drawn to that. Wait a minute, there's something behind that person's eyes. Wait a minute, I've seen my partner change and they're so happy. What are you doing? I think that that's more, and that was a lesson for me because I was always like, I have to do all these things. I have to work so hard and I have to run, run, run from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed because I'm on this mission. And one of my greatest learnings was just be who you are. Just be who you are. And it only takes one because that vibrational frequency, either the person will be like, I can't be in that vibrational frequency and things will transform or they'll be attracted to the vibrational frequency and then they will go on their own journey. There's something called an unconscious family loyalty, which I learned from Michelle Masters, which is where instead of a limiting belief, it's coming from love. And love is harder for us to shift. Because it's coming from a positive. So what I mean by that is, I love you, therefore, I want to save you. I love you, therefore, I won't become more successful than you. Mm -hmm. I love you, therefore, I'll take your pain. I love you, therefore, I love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, and keep loving you no matter what, because maybe if I love you enough, then you'll change. And none of those work. It's weird because I would perceive that would be, you think it's love, but it's fear. Yes. Exa- or it's I'm trying to get love, exactly. not knowing that I'm, exactly. I really want to get love from you. And so I'm trying to do all these things yes. so that you're okay enough to love me back.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's even being someone that's like, you know, I'm very sensitive. I'm an empath. And there was that point in the journey where I was like, oh, you know, I think it's like, you're like, oh, I care for other people. And it's like, it's actually for you, you know, to be like, oh, it's actually because this is how I seek safety. This is actually because this is how I you know, this is how I'm valued or all of those things. I think for a lot of people, they have a lot of, you know, sexual unconscious biases or sexual thoughts or things. But I don't feel like people have taken the time to really process and, and think about them as much. It's kind of like the they're doing so much work in their lives and especially for our community. I mean, they're doing so much work. They're repatterning. They're doing
1: mm-hmm.
0: tons of therapy, all of that. But then it's almost like sex is...
2: Sex is the final frontier of personal growth. Same one. <laughs> it's the final frontier of yeah. consciousness. Because we've made it so bad and wrong and so dark that we've pushed it away and therefore it's become a shadow. And in it being a shadow, we don't, we don't want to look at it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it And so we've done all this other personal growth. Like, okay, I've done the yoga classes and I've, done, I've read all the self-help books and I've, I'm, I'm doing all these things. But I think the taboo things, and this is, this is me speaking as a tantrika, but I think the taboo things are the things that are some of the most powerful tools for our evolution and our awakening because they're the places we don't want to look. And so it's often where we have the most growth to play in. And, and I want to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I think there, I'm speaking to multiple levels of consciousness, and so it can sound like a contradiction. There is a place where there's no more seeking, and there's no more work to do on yourself. But there's also this place of understanding everything is perfect and whole, and that perfection grows. That perfection still grows, flowers still bloom even though they're perfect. So we work; were, we're continually blossoming. My partner Ian calls it the infinite bloom. Mm. I love that.
0: Yeah, I think too. There's something with the body, you know. I don't know if we've been so programmed to be in the mind and like there's fear of being in the body or being with the body. But I've seen even in the community that I have here in Los Angeles, some of them in the BDSM space, some of them, in, and it's just so interesting how that I now see as a deep healing practice and as like incredibly helpful for so many people to get over really deep trauma mm-hmm. or really, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was something that I really didn't see if I would have thought before, you know, about BDSM. I'm like, oh, that's just kinky people or that's just people thinking these things, but it actually can be incredibly healing.
2: Absolutely. For me, um, I did an experiment with my partner, 40 days of dominance and 40 days of submission. And before this, I didn't have a lot of kinky in my blueprint map. And so it was me doing a lot of expanding. And there came a moment when he was dominating me where my trauma all came. And I started realizing like, whoa, this is really. I thought I'd done this work. And now I'm in like a new territory and I'm hitting these new levels of trauma. And so I went to my therapist and she's like, if it was anybody else, Jaya, you're a sexologist. You got this. She's like, if anybody else, I'd say stop the experiment. But Let's just make sure you can always talk, so no gags, and let's just make sure, you know, you're really checking in with your no, because I wouldn't say no, because then it meant he had power over me, which is the whole point, just for him to have power over me. But I was a brat. I was a complete and total brat. So it took 132 days for me to fully surrender, and it was a deeply healing process. I was also reading Bessel van der Kolk's book at the time, Um, The Body Keeps the Score, It was as if the kink play was touching aspects of my trauma that were deep in my body. You know, a spank, oh, that's reminding me of a hit or a spank from my history. The power over me, oh, that's reminding me. And it would bring up these artifacts that were even more deeply ingrained in the tissue, in in my body, so, and I've seen this with clients as well, that sometimes kink can be empowering either way in the dominant role or in the submissive role where there's a, a reclamation of something or an opportunity. And again, don't recommend this for everybody. It's, kink isn't therapy. You know, I had a therapist who was supporting me through this. I had a team of people, coaches and mentors who were supporting me through this. But there is an opportunity for kink to be a healing practice.
0: If you're in that space
2: where you are, were you dom or sub? I was in the submissive when it came up. Okay.
0: So then are you able to communicate that in the moment or are you able, you have to wait?
2: I was able to communicate in the moment. That was part of our practice right, was okay. that I was able to really communicate. But in the first eight days, I wasn't sure what was going on. I just noticed yeah. myself being really bratty and shutting down and not talking. And then I, I was like, had a whole thing about when I was like seven or eight years old coming up, like memories starting to surface. And, and right away I was like, okay, I'm going, I'm going to see my therapist to just see like what's going on and what should I do so that we can continue or should we stop to see how to process the content that was coming up. And I had her support through the whole thing.
0: Wow. Cause then you can repattern
2: basically. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like
0: these things that you don't even know are happening in your body that are kind of in your body. Bringing them up and then being able to repattern them with your prefrontal cortex, I assume, because mm-hmm. you're choosing it, you're learning it. Something I think that's so fascinating about the BDSM space that I think a lot of women struggle with right now is the idea of surrender
1: mm-hmm.
0: and being able to surrender to the masculine or just surrendering in general. And I think it's so beautiful that within BDSM, that's like one of the pillars is being able to truly surrender. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you see in women today or why it's so difficult for them to just let go, be in their bodies, stop thinking about everything?
2: I think part of it depends on your erotic blueprint and what type you are, but definitely people who identify as more sensual And that is usually it's women are sensual and energetic blueprints. And maybe we could talk about those in a little bit. But the sensual blueprint has a hard time getting out of their head and into their body. And so I think we have a hard time surrendering because the brain is going 100 miles an hour about the next thing I need to do and that thing. And a sensual really needs the opportunity to relax first before they get into the erotic space. So... And then I also think we run tapes of mistrust because of trauma, because of past history of can I really trust that this person has me? And we become so strong and so empowered that to hand over that power and to really trust that someone's going to keep you safe and that they know what they're doing, you know, does this person actually know the skill sets? Can I trust them with my emotions? Can I trust them with my body? That it makes it very. I mean, that was definitely for me. It took me 132 days before I finally like let go to him because my internal dialogue was often, "He doesn't know what he's doing. Who does he think he is?" I would be laughing at him in my head. I was a brat. I was a complete and total brat as a submissive until so somebody coached Ian. This was a few years ago. He coached Ian. He said, "Well, if she's being a brat, just take away the toy." And so part of it, too, was, for me, I needed a strong psychology. And that person was like, OK, well, if she's being a brat, you're like, I'm not going to play. And until you're ready and want to play, then I'm going to go over here and do something else. And my inner brat was like, no, no. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> so then I'm like, OK, well, I guess I have to surrender. If I really want to connect mm-hmm. with my partner in this way and practice surrender, then I actually have to be willing to do that. How has that the
0: surrender shown up in your life outside of sex? That ability to truly fully surrender to your partner?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I notice in my life that I'm just a lot softer than I used to be, more relaxed than I used to be in in general. And this is an interesting one, but it feels like I want to spend more time actually being in life, like with my son, watching birds. Totally. (laughs) reading a book, just swimming in the lake, you know, I'm more present to life because I finally learned how to surrender, not just to another, but to self with a capital S.
0: Yeah. It's funny. As you get older, you're like, I've named all the squirrels in my neighborhood. You know, (laughs) you just like, all I want to do is just be outside, you know, you just become a child again. You're like, I just want to be outside. I just want to be living my life instead of like, just so focused on on everything outside.
1: Okay. So as y'all know, I just had a baby five months ago and I wanted to talk about my prenatal and now postnatal that I'm taking. And both of them are from Ritual. Oh man. I just, I love Ritual. Why do I love Ritual? For so many reasons. This is a supplement company that really cares about the quality of their products. They care about testing. They care about certifications. They care about the product benefits and technology that is used to deliver these benefits. And I'm just so impressed. So in terms of the prenatal, let's go back in terms of their prenatal y'all, it is a multivitamin made traceable with vegan bioavailable and clinically studied. Key nutrients for before and during pregnancy. So, if you are wanting to get pregnant, I highly recommend starting a prenatal. It has omega 3 DHA. This supports the baby's brain development. It has choline and methylated folate. Methylated folate is the kind of folate that you need to support baby's neural tube development. And the capsules are so cool. They feature a delayed release design to help make it gentle on an empty stomach and a citrus essence. So, this made taking it when I was nauseous as heck. Super easy. You guys are going to love these. They are rigorously tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals. And I, I'm just so impressed. And now I am taking the postnatal baby because the postnatal period, y'all, there are key nutrients for mom's postpartum with added support for lactation in this particular supplement. And I am just feeling really good. So the ongoing support includes normal immune function. So it has vitamins A, C, D3, and zinc brain health. The brain needs the support. Choline, omega-3 DHA from microalgae and methylated vitamin B12 to help brain health. And 350 milligrams of omega-3 DHA per serving. So this helps support fatty acid content of breast milk and lactating women. You should see by breast milk, it is a very, very fatty, which is amazing for the baby. So try Ritual. I'm really excited for you. If you have not heard of Ritual, y'all, oof, go check it out. Why settle for a multivitamin you're not 100% sure about? Ritual was literally built on trust, so you know it's the real deal. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash almost 30. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women Prenatal to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash almost 30 for 20% off. Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane, baby. Oof, I've been getting so many compliments on my sweaters this season. So my New Year's resolution was to finally find like staples in my wardrobe that I will have for a really long time. And it's important to me because I didn't want to invest in fast fashion and throw away things like after a few wears, it's just not my vibe anymore. So I found Jenny Kane and this is a California brand through and through. Their staples make getting dressed actually fun and so easy, like I'm obsessed, think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined, very cool. They have luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories. They have literally versions of your everyday basics that you're going to love, plus not to mention the most incredible home essentials too. I mean you'll get lost in that home essential section. Jenny Kane is literally helping you in every area of that aesthetic, baby. And for a limited time, I'm really excited for you. You're going to get 15% off your first order. I'm going to give you my favorites in a moment, but I wanted to give you this now. 15% off your first order. JennyKane.com. Use the code ALMOST30. 15% off. All right. So my favorite right now is the Cashmere Cocoon Cardigan. It's a bestseller. I just got it in black. It's divine. And I just wear a little bralette under it. It's kind of sexy, really warm, so cozy. I'm obsessed. Check out their sweaters first and foremost. So find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code ALMOST30 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order. J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com. Promo code ALMOST30. And just let getting dressed be one less thing you have to worry about.
0: The blueprints were so interesting and, you know, I was curious. We, I want to talk about them. I want to talk about the different types, the five erotic types in the blueprints. And I was like, I'm trying to think of who I would know that would be anything but energetic because I was thinking <laughs> about a lot of the people I know haven't really had the opportunity to even be kinky because they wouldn't even have that ability to let themselves go there. So
2: right. let's talk about the blueprints. Great. So the first one is the energetic as you mentioned. And that's someone who's turned on by space, anticipation, tease, longing. They love the space between the touches. That's where the turn on is. And so the superpower of the energetic is being able to go into these expanded states of consciousness. It's about sexuality as a tool to elevate consciousness and awakening. Multidimensional sexuality. I have some Amazing stories if you want to hear about some of those like really soon. far out things. I would love like the one time I became a star orgasm. Stop. That's a good one. <laughs> so during an orgasm you became a star?
0: Yes. I talk about it in the book. Okay. <laughs> I literally don't remember that part. <laughs> and then did you come
2: back to Earth? I did come back to Earth, obviously. Yeah. What did you Still look talking. like as a star?
0: Because I see a bright, star,
2: but I don't see the star. Bright, brilliant, light. Wow. Like remembering because I think we're all made out of stardust, you wow. know? And so it was like it was like the remembering of when we were stars. What is going on in the brain, do you think? I think that the default mode network is shutting down, Mm -hmm. and you're starting to go into a mystical experience. Wow. Yeah. How long were you a star? That experience was about a half an hour long. yeah. I mean, the whole experience was much longer because we were building up to it and everything and how he was holding me, and then he pressed his third eye into my pelvic floor and something shot through my body and gone. (laughs) yeah it's like a DMT it is like a DMT experience
0: wow okay because you're energetic energy I'm primarily energetic yes okay so that's energetic
2: yeah the shadow side of the energetic however is this extreme sensitivity and you will dissociate if something's too much too quick I like it it's like a cannonball in a lake if you do a giant cannonball then you're gonna get a lot of waves and ripples that maybe you can't feel everything within but for an energetic, just taking your fingertip and dipping it in the water and watching the r- waves ripple infinitely is enough. So less is more with an energetic for sure. Thought it was interesting that energetics were em- like empaths, very much because a lot of our audience
0: are sensitive and mm-hmm. consider themselves empaths, and I obviously relate to that. And I was thinking about, I was like, oh, that's so interesting, because it is, you know, as someone that is highly sensitive, you have access to like an amplification of the senses,
2: absolutely, sight,
0: taste, such, you know what I mean, everything. So it's like seeing that within your sexuality. And I think that just provides such a, that was such so helpful for me because it helped me to rethink about the way I approach sex and how if I know that I'm so sensitive in life that certain music will turn me off or bright lights, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. how can I create the environment that supports me as someone that's being sensitive and then use that sort of same mentality as the way I go about in sex?
2: Right, right. Slow. Yeah. Paying attention, presence, being yes. in the moment. Yes. Breath. hmm Okay, so energetic, what are the other sensual. ones? Sensual. Okay. And sensual is having all of your senses ignited. So this is taste, touch, sound, the environment, being beautiful. Whereas like the energetic is more of like a hypersensitivity to the things that are going on often because in the nervous system of an energetic, there can be unresolved traumas or there's just a natural sensitivity to the world because of the level of consciousness that you're vibrating on. The sensual will want to collapse space. So you want to have hands on and all the touch and the slow dancing and the chocolate and the hot baths. And I mentioned needing to relax before you go into the sexual experience. And that's because the shadow side is getting caught up on your head and having difficulty shutting it all off intense sensation and kink is actually a way you can shut it all off. So if you're in the sensual shadow and you add a little bit of kink with some intense sensation, it can help you get into your body because you've got, you know, a Mm -hmm. slap right there that's like, bring attention to that spot. (laughs) Right. And so the sensual superpower is that they can be multi-orgasmic all over their body, full body orgasm, you know, crevices I talk about a lot as areas Mm -hmm. of the body for the sensual of have some crevice sex. Have somebody go down on the inside of your elbow. And that can be really orgasmic because the full body is part of it. The full senses are part of the sensual. So we got sensual, then we have kinky. Kinky. So kinky is anybody who's turned on by the taboo. And that's what's whatever is taboo for you. So if having sex outside a missionary position is taboo, then that's what's taboo. And there are two different types. One is psychological and one is more sensation-based. And so my partner, Ian, he's mainly kinky, and he is both sensation-based and psychological. So we use ropes as he loves constriction. So ropes are part of the sensation that he enjoys. And then if I have power play over him, he switches it up. He likes it both ways. But then that adds even more to his arousal.
0: When I thought about kinky, I think kinky's been so married with porn Mm -hmm. and like the idea of porn how do you see the two interplaying
2: right now? It's interesting. I think most porn is like kinky sexual, sort of like we have kinky and then we have sexual. And that's one of the blueprints we haven't talked about yet, but it's what we think of as sex in our culture, right? And so I would love to see someone make porn that is all of the different blueprints that then we're utilizing as a more conscious tool rather than an unconscious tool. And just like anything How do we integrate, like you're saying, how do we integrate the dance of these different blueprints and in our visuals, in our erotica, what is safe, sane and consensual and invites people into a different experience other than utilizing technology to go away from our body and utilizing technology to numb out or create somatic patterns And brain patterns are neural nets getting wired for one path to arousal. I really want to invite everybody into multiple paths, lots of different pathways, because then you have lots of choice and option versus a path that becomes a rut, that becomes a grave to your sexuality. And I think that when we're watching certain types of porn, that can become a grave eventually.
0: Yeah, it's really patterning people in specific ways. And I think it's, I don't know, maybe it is my Catholic upbringing, but it does feel more impactful than I think people think, Mm -hmm. especially on kids. Mm -hmm. Where was I? I was somewhere with friends. She has a 10-year-old. She said that she saw that she was looking at it. Mm. And it's like, there's a curiosity, obviously, you know what I mean? You're so young and there's other people doing it, but yeah, it is just something that if you're processing even kinky in that way. And you're right. like, okay, this is what this means. But maybe you have a different type of kink, which involves your body, but you're seeing it this, it just can get super, super funky.
2: Yeah. You know, working with clients who were exposed to porn at a young age, yeah. it does start to wire the brain in certain ways. But like anything in our lives, any tool in our lives, it can be used consciously or it can become a very unconscious pattern or programming or conditioning that then creates detriment to your connection and to your pleasure and arousal. And kinky, do you think most men are kinky? So this is interesting, having mm. had millions of people take the quiz. We look at gender and blueprints. Yeah. And so we've seen that women are mostly energetic, sensual in their map. However, men tend to be across the board, all of them. Mm. And I, mm. I think that's really interesting, mm-hmm, because I yeah. think we have a, um, a supposition that all men are sexual all men are kinky or like like mostly sexual kinky. And that wasn't true across the board with gender. There was a high amount of sexual, but it's almost equal. What's the sexual blueprint? So the sexual blueprint is someone who's turned on by what we think of as sex in our culture. So intercourse, nudity, getting to the orgasm, getting to the climax. The sexual is beautiful because it's easy. There's yeah. an easefulness around sexuality. Usually it can go from zero to 60 pretty quickly and it's arousal. The shadow side, however, of the sexual is that there's a missing of all of the other aspects and facets of sexuality and a missing of the journey that is so beautiful and lovely. There's always this drive to the end goal. And then there's a... Limited definition of sex. Successful sex is naked penetration. And it's not that sexuals lack depth, it's, they have depth. It's just in their shadow aspect, they get limited and fixated because for a sexual, sex means relaxation and everything is right in the world. So it's the opposite of the sensual, where they go, I have to relax first before I can get in the mood. And then for a sexual, it's, no, let's just, we can have sex anytime. Then I feel nice and relaxed. But that's a lower percentage of our population. How much does trauma lead to the sexual blueprints? That's an interesting question. I think it's a cultural trauma. Say more. So I think our collective culture has limited sex yeah. so much. And when we see sex, if it's in porn or we see it in a TV show or something, it's, not even like one one hundredth of the tip of an iceberg of what is possible when it comes to our eroticism and sexuality. And so we have in our collective consciousness this limited definition combined with shame, combined with body not OK, you know, combined. So we have this perfect storm and then generationally, we have parents who have shame that then pass that on to their children. We have, and then even worse, you know, abusiveness around sexuality. We have medical industry that doesn't necessarily know even how to talk about it or has shame about talking about it. And we don't have to have accurate sex education. So in the United States, we don't even have to have medically accurate, comprehensive sex education. The absence only training is taught a lot still. And so how do we expect to have healthy, conscious sexuality when this is all going on within the collective? So until we shift our collective consciousness, we stay trapped and sexuality doesn't get to grow. I've talked about this before, but I read this book called
0: Dominion, and it talks a lot about how the influence of Christianity on the West and how it's just so like cellular, like we were talking about. And one of those aspects is as it relates to sex education and thinking about abstinence is really like a Christian Catholic type of ideology or belief. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily something that would be believed or taught all over the world. And it's so interesting because it's like if we are separating church and state and, you know, in a lot of places, like we'd remove church from schools, then the ideas that would are taught, it's like so normal to do abstinence as the teaching mm-hmm. that it blows my mind because... Mm-hmm. If you were like, okay, everyone's going to go t- learn Christian things or learn Catholic things, you'd be like, no. But that right. idea is essentially part of that. It's tied. It's yeah.
2: Linked. Yeah. I, th- I find it also fascinating when we were talking about Mary Magdalene and Christ, how much church and politics yeah. and religion and politics were interwoven so deeply. And how much it's taken for us to unravel that. And I think as a collective, we still haven't quite grown consciousness to have that completely decoupled. And then that ties into sexuality. And some people say sexuality is political. Everything that I'm doing is actually an activism Hmm. because when people are sexually empowered, they're an empowered people. And Hmm. so when we start to have women being empowered in their eroticism, then there's a threat to other powers, mm-hmm. just like any marginalized community coming forward and, and fully into their power that becomes a threat. And mm-hmm. so it's just fascinating the whole how it's all historically, even the Victorian era, you know, we haven't talked about the Victorians, but that was like a very important era, love to hear. you know, and then we've got the Inquisition and. Yep. In the Victorian era, that's when, I think it's interesting because that's when vibrators were created. Stop. But there was all this repression of sexuality. So all of these women were having trouble with their uteruses and hysterectomies became, that's when hysteria. So they had hysteria. So then they would give them hysterectomies. But the doctors found a treatment for this hysteria was to give women orgasms. They called paroxysms at the time. (laughs) They had a medical medical terminology for it because they're like, well, we can't say we're just giving women orgasms. But that meant the male doctor's hands would wear out, and they'd have to ice them from giving women orgasms all day as a treatment for hysteria. And so that's when one of the doctors created vibrators in order to help his hands. <laughs> yeah, there's some really fun. There's movies on it. There's a movie called Hysteria. There's a John Harvey Kellogg who created a Kellogg cereal. Right. There's a movie about it there too. They, what was the Spanish Inquisition? So the Inquisition was a time when p- women were trialed as witches. You right know, right. and so. This was often women who were sexually outspoken, empowered, used herbal medicines. Some people say psychedelics were being used, and that's where we get a lot of the mysticism of that time. And the church just went after I mean, millions of women there throughout the world, you know, during these times of the Inquisition, because there was a the Spanish Inquisition, but there were other inquisitions around the world because that spread. And you know the persecution was very intense. And then how women were pitted against each other. And I think that that's still today. We still have that competition
1: mm-hmm.
2: amongst women because we were taught to betray each other, to stay alive. You know, rightly, it was, an, it was an adaptation to an adverse situation. I'm curious what would happen when we all come together in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a rise of that on our in our planet right now of our voices and... These ancient wisdoms being reclaimed Mm -hmm. that were lost. It saddens me a lot that so much was lost.
0: What saddens me about it is that it was like the women that were connected to the earth and used plants and nature and the elements like obviously all of it saddens me, but it's like that element of like the magic of plants and the earth. Mm hmm. That we could use specific things to heal things, to cure things, was just part of the power.
2: Medicine and raising consciousness are, I mean, these plants are on the planet for those two things.
0: And even in schools, we learned about the Salem witch trials and all the witch trials, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because it's like subconscious messaging around the badness of being a witch. Right. You know, because you learn about, it's like, it's just so weird. Okay, shapeshifter. Shapeshifter. Our last one.
2: Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, back to the little <laughs> words.
0: We're it's in the Victorian era industry. <laughs> We've traveled the world and now we're back here.
2: So the shapeshifter is someone who's all of them and it's advanced spiritually. So I have I a, want a hierarchy a for them. <laughs> I, have I want to make them at the top.
0: <laughs> My
2: theory is that we're all actually shapeshifters. Mm. And it's not necessarily a hierarchy, more than it is an inclusion. So the shapeshifter is inclusive of all the others, and so therefore it makes it a more inclusive consciousness because it has full spectrum, and so the shapeshifter can play in all of them. It's like somebody who can speak all the languages, mm. as it is multilingual, mm-hmm. and then the the shapeshifter also is an ultimate lover because they can shapeshift to be anything, it can speak any language. The shapeshifter on the shadow side, however, is often they feel like they're too much. They're too complex. They don't fit in the world. They're often starving because not everybody's a shapeshifter. So how are they going to get all of their needs met in terms of their sexuality? And they often feel like there's something wrong with them because they want so much. And I like to reframe that a little too. You're not too much. You're not too complex. You're just highly erotically intelligent and sophisticated. And most people don't know how to meet that sophistication. So if we looked at it like a shapeshifter is someone who's like a hyper sports car that most people have no idea how to drive so that it opens all the way up beautifully. It's that you you need somebody who really has mastery over how to drive and know how to open you up, especially if you're an energetic shapeshifter, because that one is the, the has the most finesse to it. It's like playing a Stradivarius. So you can have two of them. Yeah, most of us have a percentage of okay. all the blueprints. Okay. We usually have a primary, mm-hmm. but it's a map. Not very many people are like 90% all of one. There are some people who are super highly energetic or super highly sexual that I have seen, where it's like 70 or 80%, and then the rest are smaller amounts. My partner Ian and I, when we took our own quiz, I was zero kinky. Stop. And he's primarily kinky. And I was he was zero sexual. And I'm almost the same energetic sexual. And so we were almost complete Mm -hmm. opposites. He was sensual next. And I was only 5% sensual. And and then he was only 5% energetic. So we had a complete mismatch. But I think what's interesting about mismatches is is that if you're willing to learn, then you can completely start to rewire your sexuality to be more full spectrum because our blueprint shows us where we're limited more than anything. And so we want to have more of this shapeshifter shifter. My this is from just me watching people over the last 30 years. My view is that we get it conditioned and programmed out of ourselves. Energetic's not okay. It's witchy woo-woo. So let's just shut that part off. I don't understand it, so therefore it's not okay. Or for me, like sensual was unsafe. Being in that surrender and that softening of all my senses felt unsafe. Kinky was very unsafe. And so I had to learn how to now reintegrate these parts of myself that I had disowned and pushed away. Yeah, I love that reframe because I
0: was going to ask you about the partnership between two that have something different. You would think on the surface that having the same would be best, but there is that really beautiful opportunity to use it as an edge, Mm -hmm. to be like, what about this is not something that I'm called to or on the surface like feels like it's the fit for me, like because I even think about like kinky for me, I'm like, oh, it feels like there's a part of me that has the story that I would never be enough for someone that was kinky
2: because
0: mm. they'd always want more right? or want to push to some limit. But then I'm like, okay, if I have that, then there must be something there. There's always something there when you have some thought or feeling. Right. Not always, but there can be that where it can be an
2: edge for you where mm-hmm. there could be ultimate pleasure on the other side. Right. And how do I have my enoughness? I definitely had that, too, when I first started Kinky. Yes. Like, oh, gosh. I was. I remember I was working with this guy who was a complete sadist, and I was learning from him. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be submissive so that I can learn, right. so that I could be dominant to Ian. And we did all our, like, consent and everything. And I was still in a little bit of my struggle around, oh, can Just I really surrender rap? to somebody? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> And totally being a brat. But I also have this little part of me that's like, I really want to please him. Oh, like, yeah. I what really, do you mean? I want to be enough for this kinky person yes. who's a sadist that I can take it. And I remember I wouldn't call red. This was before I'd learned, you know, I need to really, like, the other person can trust me if I call red, which was my safe word to stop. And he was doing a spanking demonstration with me. And I wouldn't call red. I just kept saying yellow to get him to kind of like go a little lighter. And in my head, I'm going, okay, but I want really want to be enough. I really want to please him. And I couldn't sit for two weeks after that experience. That would be me. In the name of science. Um. I pushed myself a little too far. And I would tell Ian, it was it became kind of part of our play of like, look what I've done for you. Mm-hmm. I love you so much to, to please your kink that I went out and got my bottom spanked so hard that I can't mm-hmm. sit for two weeks.
0: But He's like, fuck, I can't spank your bottom. <laughs> He's like, no, you have that bare bottom.
2: What are some obstacles that people have to
0: sexual health and pleasure? Like what are some things that are standing in the way besides kind of the general things we talk about? I think something that was I was found interesting in your book is like the health related things like getting your hormones Mm. checked, like actually very basic things outside of the cultural landscape can also be really impacting people's pleasure and ability to feel pleasure.
2: Yeah, I'm always looking at four things. So one is what's happening on the biochemical level, as you mentioned. So have you had your hormones tested? Are you looking at your neurotransmitters? What do your what does your blood work in your labs look like? And you can get your doctor to talk to you about that, someone who's knowledgeable in maybe integrative medicine or looking at it from a more holistic point of view. And then The physical body, so things like scar tissue. I think this is one especially for those of us in female bodies and with vulvas and uteruses that we get scar tissue from adhesions, from infections, from childbirth, from surgeries. And most people are not looking at that as something that's affecting their sexuality. But it absolutely, if you're having pain, if you're having drops in libido, it could be that it's related to scar tissue. Do
0: you think scar tissue then is just a buildup of like
2: nerves that are kind of stuck? So it's like not moving a lot of energy in that space. So what's happening is the tissue, it, the collagen fibers are laying down not mm-hmm. even like this. I'm using my hands. Yeah. For Those of you who can't see my fingers are even. Whereas it like it starts to lay down all gnarled. Wow. And in that, blood doesn't get flowing appropriately. Nerve conducti- yeah. conducting isn't going yeah. properly. And so that tissue when those collagen fibers lay down like that, it's impeding the flow of a lot of things. And that impedes our sensation. So we have the getting tested, so the biochemical markers. What are the other three? Physical, which I was just chatting about around the, the scar tissue. But that can also be tight muscles. That could be bones out of place. So what's actually happening in the physical body? And then the the next one is the bioenergetics and bioenergetics We're bioenergetic before we're biochemical or anything else. So that's really like what's happening at the cellular level, protons, neutrons, electrons, atoms, vib- vibratory frequency. If we're looking at energy and matter, you know, how is the energy affecting the matter that we are? And in that also looking at polarities within us, looking at how energy is flowing in the body and the meridians, getting things like acupuncture, and that can be helpful if there's something blocked in the energetic field. And even like we were just saying, the scar tissue can block as well the energetic field. And then the last one being psyche-emotional. So we wanna look as well at what's happening at that emotional layer, because any emotional charge, I believe, is leading us back to integration of who we are. And so the emotional charge is an opportunity for us if we can work on clearing that charge, moving back into wholeness, moving into what in accelerated evolution, which is a technique that I use a lot for clearing emotional charges, takes us into a pleroma state, which is a state of nothingness, an emptiness state. And I love that within, you know, utilizing a stuck emotion within 20 to 40 minutes, we can be in pleroma state. We don't have to go to the mountain and meditate for 40 years.
0: How would we use pleasure to create a life we desire? So how do we use this practice of pleasing ourselves, having pleasure with a partner in a bigger way in our lives? Like, how could we see that manifest?
2: I think pleasure is a tool and a fuel for our manifestation. So Pleasure is like putting fuel on a fire, and it also is our resource. So if we're not in pleasure and we're not resourced, what's the point? (laughs) That's definitely my belief. Pleasure first. Like, let's do everything in pleasure and enjoy life. That's what we're here for. We're here to enjoy and play and be in pleasure. You need to tell my soul that. (laughs) This year I've been like, pleasure is how we learn. Pleasure
0: (laughs) Not suffering.
2: (laughs) Pleasure is how we heal too. Yes. Um. One person, you know, we talk about being trauma informed a lot in therapy, but also I think there's a lot of value in being pleasure informed. Wow. And why not heal in pleasure? Why? Why heal in suffering? Why make it hard work? Can it be more pleasurable? Yes. A hundred percent. Can it be easier? Yes. And let's choose that flow down, down the river with the current instead of swimming upstream. Mm. And pleasure is a beautiful current to flow downstream. What would you say to the woman listening that has
0: an inner witch or an inner high priestess or an inner like sexual being? What would you say to her to inspire her to reclaim that aspect of her? Mm. I, love,
2: I love this, this idea of reclamation of aspects of ourselves that we put away. And so... Look at archetypes and what is the witchy, sexually empowered high priestess that, you know, maybe it's Mary Magdalene, that you resonate with. Right now, I'm really resonating with Vajrayogini. Say more. Who is a tantric Tibetan Buddha. And she came in a feminine form in order to teach that the Buddha can come in any form. And she had sexuality intact. And all kinds of other dark, you know, when we think of like the dark things, but sexuality was one of them. She utilized sexual energy to to help others to awaken through that sexual energy. And so every day I do a Vajrayogini practice. like It's like a yoga, breath work and movement. There's songs and chants to her as well, but find an archetype and that archetypal energy of that witchy priestess, that sexually empowered woman, I think there's a lot actually out there when you start to look, you know, it, or maybe it's even a reclamation if you were Catholic or Christian. Lilith is a I great was thinking, literally one. literally <laughs> just thinking of Lilith. <laughs> like, I've <been> so good. <laughs> deep in on Lilith. Just another thing,
0: you're like, if this is true, mm-hmm. this is, changes everything. Right. Like, so the belief is that. This was part of a mystic Jewish text. There was a mystic Jewish author that had the belief that the text was written or read incorrectly and that there was actually God created a man and woman that were equal. Mm-hmm. And it was Adam and Lilith. Mm-hmm. And then Adam wanted to be more powerful than Lilith, correct? Yeah. And Lilith was like, fuck no. Yes. <laughs> and so she ba- I just got chills. So she basically turned like into like a demon
1: mm-hmm.
0: and just made her way ravaging the earth. And then God created Eve to be submissive to Adam with the rib. Right. And then Lilith was basically like this like crazy demon.
2: Right. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Just like
0: living her life. Like,
2: yeah. And what I think is also interesting is that we even this word demon... Like yes, that's, If was, we look at, at that. Eastern culture, the yeah. demons are like the protectors and the powerful ones, and they're not like bad and wrong. And I think it's interesting to even look at religions and how we'll co-opt something from another religion and then make it bad when somebody would conquer an area and then inst- instill their new religious beliefs. Then they make whatever was prior bad. So we look at all these feminine-based religions where the women are empowered, you know, in Nana and like the Sumerian Mm -hmm. and Babylonian stories. And then now that's a demon. I was going to say Babylon is seen as Babel, you know, Tower Mm -hmm. of Babel, like super, super bad for the church. And in Babylon, then essentially women were empowered. Right. Wow. And so we have a completely different viewpoint then because it's been ingrained that now that's bad wrong Mm -hmm. and evil when actually it was a story of empowerment. So when you see... Like like Vajrayogini, she's threatening or Kali yeah. in Hinduism. Mm-hmm. She's got skulls around her neck and limbs as a skirt and she's holding a bloody head and you know we have So dope. And so like and she was a bad like in Tantra, the story mm-hmm. of Kali is she was the Tantric Kali who was Durga created Kali because there were all these like bad guys, bad demons, not the demons we're talking about. And Durga couldn't defeat them. So she made Kali, which was the wrathful aspect of herself. She took the wrathful aspect of herself, made it into Kali. And Kali went crazy, killing all of them. But then she had bloodlust and they couldn't stop her. Like a similar, you know, the Lilith is like, bye. Yeah. (laughs) And and so she went to Shiva, Durga went to Shiva and said, Shiva, please help. (laughs) I've created Mm -hmm. this wrathful aspect of myself that won't stop. And What's interesting in that story is then Shiva came and the only way he tried battling her, they did dance battles, it's a very West Side Story, <laughs> like all these different things. And he couldn't get her to calm down until he laid at her feet in oh. surrender. And he offered up his cock and then she spun on his cock for... Kali? Kali? Yes. Stop. <laughs> That's, some years. That's one story I'm about obsessed. Kali. So the tantric version of Kali.
0: It's interesting because it's in so many places in history... It's not like the Osiris Isis, but it's kind of like that cock as the ultimate healing, the pinnacle of the healing or like the apex of the healing in the story. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, this is the solution almost Mm -hmm. like.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. What I think is interesting about that story is it's the masculine who comes and surrenders to her and he offers himself up. And then she's like, okay, now that you've surrendered and stopped trying to fight me, So it's just a flip on it. Instead of the submissive Eve, we have a Shiva, who's all powerful, you know, and could do all these things, but he has to come and surrender to the feminine in this story.
1: Wow.
2: She's like, I'll take off my skulls. Okay. A little bit. Okay, I'll chill out. (laughs) (laughs) For sitting on your (laughs) clock
0: for hours. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, I love that concept for, we just, and for anyone listening, we just dropped, mostly you. A lot of different archetypes that people can tap into Mm -hmm. and tune into and you can kind of feel into your body what feels like something you want to learn about, what's something you want to like just spikes your curiosity Mm -hmm. as far as archetypes. I love archetype work. I feel like it's a highway to learning about ourselves.
2: I agree. I agree because in the collective we have these types of archetypes. Mm -hmm. In the book I talk about erotic personas and so this is where... That reclamation of an aspect of yourself, if you find an archetype that has the qualities you want to reclaim, so if it's the super slut, if it's the priestess, whatever that is that you want to reclaim that you've disowned, then you can start to study the archetype, start to embody it then next, because it's not just about the mind, now it's about, well, how does that archetype walk? How does that archetype dress? How can I more fully embody that? Photography has been one of my favorite tools for healing for myself in reclaiming these things. You taking photos or in front of the camera? Me in front of the camera. One was body image and shame. And like seeing my body through another lens helped me then go, wait a minute, that's not how the world sees me. I see it in my own brain this way or in the mirror this way. But wow, I'm actually quite gorgeous. You know, like my ass in that angle in this archetype as I'm reclaiming, I had one called Puddles, and she was the reclamation of my slutty, like, coming of age mm-hmm. and the it's reclamation of delight mm-hmm. because I didn't have delight in my sexuality at that time. It was very serious. And so that young roller skating, eating cotton candy, mm-hmm. sugar, I really reclaimed sugar, my relationship to sugar, and pigtails, like that whole nine yards of that teenage coming that was shut down in me of like this slutty aspect isn't okay. I mean, I was playing it out in exotic dancing, I guess, but this allowed me then to really integrate it integrated into my own personality. And that, I think it's not your role playing. You're actually reintegrating and reclaiming an aspect. And it was through the photos that I really got to see her come alive and see myself come alive in a completely different way. That was very, very healing. Yeah, because I think body is something that, bringing it in the room
0: at this part in the conversation, but it's like, that is something that I think a lot of women struggle with is their relationship to their body, feeling insecure, feeling unworthy, feeling too fat, too thin, too straight, too curvy, whatever the things are. Mm -hmm. And I think that is like the first gate that people sometimes have to get through is that acceptance and, yeah, reverence of their body. Do you see that a lot? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I heard a statistic once that only 1% of women actually have the body they're attracted to. 1%. So the body we're attracted to is often a very different type of body when we're looking at other women. Okay. I was like, yeah. Yeah. And so only 1% have a body that they go, oh, that's beautiful. Wow. And I, I wonder, you know, I'm curious, how do we start to shift that narrative where we, we love ourselves And I, you know, it's always interesting talking about self-love, just my, even my own journey in it. But the interesting thing to me is about self-love is that we can hear it so many times, like love yourself, love yourself, Mm -hmm. self-love, that's the thing, (laughs) you know, unconditional love for yourself. And I thought I knew what that was, but I didn't really know what that was until I experienced it. And I I think it's like an orgasm until you directly experience what self-love is. You have no idea really what it is. And that journey of self-love, I think is a journey of knowing yourself. So when you know yourself, you love yourself. But if you don't know who you are, it's really hard to love yourself.
0: Yeah. I liken it to the feeling, the experience of when you can feel your soul, you know, when you have that like taste in your mouth of your true essence or that feeling of experiencing your soul. But yeah, I thought self-love for a long time was like self-love was me being the best version of myself and being amazing. And then I loved that. You know, me being perfect, and then I loved that, me being all of these things, and it's quite the opposite. It's loving all textures, loving yourself when you're disappointed yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's incredible how over time all these concepts and ideas and you're just offered them self-love, all these things. And they just completely do not resonate or integrate at all until they do, mm-hmm. until you get them. And you're like, oh, I understand. I've been
2: hearing this for 30 years. Yes. They said, love yourself. They said, love your body. They said, Every you know, song sang about
0: it. Every, yes. You
2: know, every movie. Yes.
0: But it's like the loving the loving the performative aspect or whatever. But yeah, what would you say then for people? How can they increase or how can they cultivate that self love?
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, even just thinking about how do we even cultivate the experience of having an orgasm? Because I mm-hmm. think about it as a direct experience. Like, what brings you to the direct experience of loving yourself? And I think there's a grace that gets played in this. Of uh, there is a moment. Sometimes it's rock bottom crying on the floor because your heart broke, where all of a sudden the clouds part, and there it is. It can be a divine moment. It can just happen like that. I think we also have tools, breath work, movement, getting into ecstatic states or different states of consciousness, psychedelic medicine, plants. There there are tools that we have, sexuality, you know, and we've made them taboo oftentimes, these tools. I I like to say I'd like to start a movement someday that's decriminalize plants, decriminalize people, and decriminalize pleasure. Mm. I think we've made the tools that help us get back to our self-love criminal, Mm -hmm. and so it makes it a little hard to move into direct experience because we've made them wrong and bad.
0: Beautiful. I'm really excited for people to get the book and to experience it. What was your favorite part to write?
2: Mm. My favorite part to write was a section called The Chess Game.
0: Mm, say more.
2: So what I notice in a lot of my clients and a lot of people that I've worked with over the years is they, they have a game that they've been playing. And that that game is usually a game that has certain roles that they've allowed themselves to play and other people to play and certain patterns based upon their programming and their conditioning that they have been doing unconsciously. And I love the moment in my practice when I get, when I can see it and then I get to go, oh, here's the racket. Here's the game that you've been playing. Do you want to continue to play that game? And so there's a section in the book where I start talking about how to unravel and become conscious of the fact that you're playing the game. Because once you're conscious of the fact that you can play it, that you're playing it, you can play a different game and you can make a new choice. Can you give an example of the game? Yeah. Good example of the game. Okay, so my partner and I, we had a game where I was always in the role of wanting more sex than he wanted. And I was always chasing him. And he was mostly in the role of lower libido, not in the mood. And then I would start a racket inside my own head of, I'm not worthy. He doesn't love me anymore. All men should want sex. What's wrong with him? And he would run a racket of lack of self-confidence. I'm not I'm failing in the relationship. And when he feels like he's failing, then the libido goes down and it would just become this cycle. A lot of people experience that. Absolutely. And I think people don't talk about men, especially after having a baby. Oh, yeah. And his libido went way down after we had our son. And so it was this sort of disconcerting thing of like, oh, but wait, you're supposed to be wanting sex. And he's not a sexual either. We didn't have the blueprints at that time. And so we just kept looping in this and looping in it. And 10 years of our relationship of looping in this place, when I had an experience of direct experience of self-love and a mystical experience that woke me up to not just the game I was playing within my own relationship, but the game of consciousness on a meta view, the divine Leela that consciousness itself was playing. And once I saw that Everything changed. Everything and everything in my life changed. I can now see, like, oh, I'm about. I, well, I'll even look at him and be like, "We're about to play the game. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do it?" <laughs> you know. And sometimes we'll both look at each other. We both know we're going to do it. And something in me keeps playing. Oh yeah, and it's really interesting. I think to the watch. part of me that's like, "Don't play the game." I'm like, "I'm going to fucking play the game."
0: <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. rebel
2: part of me that's like, "You're not fucking telling me what to do." Yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, watch me play the game. <laughs> Exactly. And so now, you know, what's fun is that the brain stops. It learns that there's no more cheese down that tunnel, that that adaptation that caused you to play that or whatever you're learning that caused you to play that now goes, wait a minute, there's actually no cheese down that tunnel and it actually isn't fun anymore. We don't need it anymore. So let's make a different choice. And if we don't make the different choice and we start to like go down the rabbit hole, then it usually only lasts Five minutes, ten minutes, maybe a half an hour instead of days and weeks where we're in this yes tussle.
0: I love that because that brings a conscious awarenessness to it. It brings play to it. I think play is such a huge thing to bring a lightness to it, to bring you know like to lift the gravity of that. Because what's happening is you're kind of just going down a neural pathway of like this neural pathway mm-hmm. that you have, and then he has his neural pathway, and then you're just like coming to a head with it. And I think that's beautiful because there's a lot of people listening that are probably a couple. That have their own game mm-hmm. chess game that they play whether it's you never want to have sex this way or you know it's like the you mm-hmm. always right. kind of when we
2: always go to you always you never right like those like and sometimes it's sex and sometimes it's a bigger exactly. dynamic mm-hmm. in the relationship and often that game came long before you even started the relationship yeah. and then the two of you came together for karmic or trauma bonding or whatever that was that needs to be unraveled and then there's a lot more peace. I mean, my relationship now we have so much peace. Last thing, it's like I remember that moment in my relationship,
0: in one of my relationships in my life where I started to see him as a person and not the archetype of a man. Mm,
2: that you know what I mean? The projection, the projection yep. where yep. I was like,
0: "Oh, you could not want to have sex sometimes. You could feel insecure in your body. You could feel like you know, it was just like, "Oh, I'm not st- Approaching you as man always wants sex. Man likes sex this way. Man, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, yeah, that was very healing for me because I'm like, oh, we're both two humans that have our own sexual, and this is why the book's so important. It's like thinking of yourselves as two humans, man or woman, female, whatever your situation mm-hmm. is, coming to the table with your own unique signature and blueprint to be expressed and felt. One hundred percent container.
2: Yeah, it's it's about honoring each other for who we are. It's interesting to just talking about this game because one of my big revelations is, again, this, like, meta game that we're all playing, which is let us forget the magnificence of who we are. Let us forget everything about the truth and play this game of two-ness. You know, I, I often think even the Eris Gammas, the Mythuna, is oneness learning how to play two-ness so that it can remember that it's oneness again. And so the ultimate game is coming into a place where we remember that we're playing, that we are a consciousness playing this reality. We've created an amazing chessboard of this world, of this three-dimensional reality in which to play. And how beautiful, what a gift. Because if it was just oneness and nothingness, we wouldn't have senses, we wouldn't feel, we wouldn't be able to make love. So what a gift this divine human game is. Beautiful.
0: But remember, you're playing. I know. Sometimes I'm like, is this fun for you? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, is this, do you think this is
2: fun? Seriously. You know what yeah, I mean? I am like, the same thoughts. Literally,
0: I'm like, I can't wait to go back. <laughs> oh. And then they're like, you keep saying that, you're going to stay. I'm like, fuck. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah,
0: I mean? Totally. Oh, beautiful. Well, I'm so <laughs> excited about the book. So your blueprint for pleasure. Discover the five erotic types to awaken and fulfill your desires. It is out now. And I think everyone's going to really love it. I'm grateful you came. I've wanted you, so you on for, for a while. Me. So I'm really grateful we got to sit Yay. down. It was Yay. such a pleasure. Awesome. Bye, guys. Thank you so much, Miss Jaya. Thank you for talking to us about your erotic blueprint, a book available now, M I S S J A I Y A dot com,
1: to find more information, to take the quiz, and find out what you are. Mm-hmm. Head to almost30.com to learn more about our membership, which is a place that we love and just pour into because there's so many of you out there that want to grow, learn, connect, in community. And so we created a space for that, resources for that. So almost 30.com slash membership. And then follow us on TikTok, Instagram at almost 30 podcast. We're having a silly use time over there. Yeah. And I'm on Instagram at it's Krista. It's I-T-S-K-R-I-S-T-A. And I'm at Lindsay Simsek. We will see you really soon. New episodes every week. Love you. Bye. Bye.